Hi Earthlings and welcome to another episode of the Mother Earth Heroes podcast. This is the podcast where we're speaking with inspiring people, designing companies and products and systems to make a better world. Now I'm continuing with the subject of food and I've spoken to some amazing people already on this uh, series and a lot of it has been looking at things like the efficiency of food, trying to increase yields. We've got this huge population that continues to grow 10 billion by 2050 potentially and you know we've got to figure out how to to feed them but one of the things i hadn't really looked at was the amount that we don't use this is how much we throw away i mean i don't know about you sometimes in the fridge you know you realize something's gone past their sell by date and you're like ah that's a waste of money i throw it away but it's actually amazing just how much we do waste. And each year we're talking about 3 billion tons of food just gets thrown away. You've got one in four people on the planet who are suffering from not having enough food and we're throwing away 30% of the food that we produce. So things like fish, that's one in every three fish is just caught then thrown away and probably a lot more than that even meat and things like that so many animals are being slaughtered and then ultimately we're wasting this food now there's also a huge problem with that it generates an awful lot of greenhouse gases and the food industry represents 26 percent of all the greenhouse gases this is huge much much bigger than transport and other areas that people are so concerned about it's also a lot of money 750 billion dollars worth of food is wasted each year this is also a huge opportunity, a $750 billion industry potentially, which everyone else is looking at as waste. And this is what um, today's guest, this is the CEO, Yalmash Ronneber Norgren from Karma, found along his startup journey. And together they have managed to make quite a bit of impact, saving thousands of tons, saving around about 4 million meals already and reducing thousands of tons of carbon dioxide through the process. This is also a really great pivot story. This is one where they started out trying to solve really, really big problems, but then realized that it was better to be focusing in on a more sort of targeted market. And this actually became food and food waste, which they then learned a lot more about. And I think this is really interesting because it talks talks about things like the challenges of creating a B2B, B2C business model. So you have multiple users and the challenges that all those different users have is different, of course, and how profit is vital if you're creating a sustainable business model. And he talks a lot about resilience and optimism, and those are the sort of vital qualities you need to keep going throughout the different challenges that they faced, including COVID, and how karma is not just actually about food waste and food reduction and redistribution, it's also about data. And really Really, really discovering why waste is occurring and in the long term how they can sort of model it and create more efficient systems. It's an amazing business and a great conversation with Yalma, CEO of Karma. My name is Jalmar Alberg Nordgren, a pretty lousy international name, but works well here in Sweden. Um, I am uh, one of the co-founders and the CEO of Karma, a uh, company that helps restaurants, grocery stores, uh, cafes, bakeries, you name it, anyone working with food to sell their surplus. I wanted to just start straight off with a little bit of your background because I found your background really quite fascinating. Um, you you started off in medicine and even worked as a doctor for a year, I believe, or so. Yeah. But prior to that, you'd already kind of got a bit of a bug for startups. Could you talk a little bit about that? Definitely, yeah. So um, 
Uh, you're you're absolutely right. I studied medicine at Karolinska Institute here in in Sweden, and uh, I just uh, somehow always knew that I wanted to study medicine uh, from from like I don't know, eleven, twelve years of age. I have two uh, journalist parents, so I didn't really have it in the family, but for some reason I was hell bent on doing it. So um, I pursued that with ferocity and. Uh, I think the the thing that actually got me into startups in the beginning was, um, unbeknownst at the time, I started to do little side projects when other people in my class were starting to get a side job to like sit in the uh, by the cash register mm-hmm. in the local grocery store. I went to uh, I had a, a brother who who was talking about this thing called like creating websites on the internet, and everyone was moving there, so. Now's the time to to sort of help out. So uh, I learned some basic HTML, uh, a basic programming language for mm-hmm. web, and um, I set off on a on a very sort of what's now a very long journey of of uh, building things in computers. And um, I've always been fascinated by the sort of creative freedom that you get from doing that. So that's always been around during like before med school, and then during med school and it's what ultimately led me to to start my first startup during university and um, that ultimately then uh, led me to fall in love with startups and and leave the medical career one year after I graduated. That's something I was, I was just interested in because there's a certain amount of I suppose it, you say oh. tenacious you had to really uh, ferocious I think was the the term you used to actually get through <laughs> medical school it's not an easy study to get through and then to qualify um, but then you you sort of within a, a year you stepped away as <laughs> how was that I mean that's also a big loss to start with in a way. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, good question. It was, uh, I think everyone around me thought that I was definitely doing the wrong choice or making the wrong choice. Um, and, you know, everyone was trying to talk me out of it. And to me, it always felt like I wasn't really abandoning anything. I was trying something out. And if that wouldn't work, I could always go back. So I felt like I had that safety, safety net and, you know, uh, uh, safety cable attached at all times but you know, at some point that probably you know a couple of years down the road that probably fell off without me knowing it and but i was still like in love with with the entrepreneurial world so i i didn't really notice it but but i always i never felt like i you know gave up medicine to go do this but now in in hindsight I've, i realize i probably have <laughs> Well, some degree, at least. <laughs> some degree, for the moment, at least. For mm. the moment, at least. But so that first startup, it um, obviously, it, I think there were a couple of things you started initially, but um, you had one that re, uh, that actually took off quite quite well. So that allowed you to step away and start taking on this this idea of of becoming a boss of a business. How was that then? What lessons were there in that first first experiences? Probably some very valuable ones. Um, but uh, I think I I always saw myself as like, oh, I can do this. I had this hubris that <laughs> this won't be an issue. I have what it takes to run a company. And I've, I think I've learned uh, the, the hard way along the way that uh, I, I've, I've had to develop a lot of skills like communicating with others and building a team and, you know, all I've probably done all the, the mistakes you can do uh, uh, during that period of time that I've, I've uh, uh, been active. And I think that that was sort of a humbling experience. And uh, instead of 
getting me scared of continuing with startups, it, it did quite the opposite. Like I realized that there was a vast amount of things to learn uh, from doing this. And the one thing that really stuck around after med school was like this <laughs> unquenchable thirst for like learning more things and doing more things. Um, so in essence, I think like um, it's been it's been a a long and very valuable lesson running a startup and you you have to be on your toes to sort of try to figure out what it is that you need to improve on to get to the next step because you're often sort of uh, you need to evolve to get to that next step with your startups and that to me uh, has always been like the the most fun part of of doing this this was a case of you actually ha- you're having some success and as i understand it you 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 and your team suddenly said well is this actually the direction we really want to go in so mm. is is that was that the actual case initially you were moving in one direction and then suddenly went maybe we should start something else or yeah so so what happened with with the first company was like before my first real company i had this project together with uh, with a couple of friends uh, that almost turned into a company or like in hindsight, it was probably more or less a small, very small company. Um, but that never really felt like a business. And then uh, when we started this second venture, uh, some of the people who who had been joining for the first one, when we started the second one called Responster, we we started to understand that there's so many things that we could have done better in the at, at our first try. So it was it was really fun to do it all over again uh, and start over with like fresh eyes, but with the experience from the first one. And uh, when we finally took the step, because we were several people who were studying at the time and some of uh, some of them graduated and started working full time. And then when I graduated, I was doing, you know, part time for a good part of a year uh, almost when we all took the decision to like, okay, let's, let's go for this. Let's, let's build a company, I guess. Then we sort of realized that like, okay, but if, if we're going for this, like if we're throwing our educations away, which was the worst case scenario, like if that's what we're doing, shouldn't we at least be doing something that we think is really fun or like something that gets us excited. And the company that we had built was this sort of a company that started out as a fun idea and then grew into this. It was an enterprise serving software company. Uh, and I think none of us were really passionate about enterprise serving software, at least not at the time. So it wasn't that hard of a choice to say, like, uh, we, we started to understand that building a, a company will take many years and you have to. If you're not enjoying it from the start immensely, then I think you'll have a hard time motivating yourself along the ride. So uh, that to us was sort of the defining moment. Yeah, I can imagine. So I think that is the the realization that maybe you're enjoying the process, but not where you're going. So mm. at this point, you had to sit down and say, okay, what do we want to do? And you, you set about looking at that. So what were the parameters? What did you actually sit down when you said, okay, let's try and start this company? What things were going to be? Because I also know that this is something also a bit of a pivot story i believe yeah yeah definitely so i think we we started off in the wrong end with this company <laughs> again like having talked to a lot of other founders over the, the last couple of years i've realized that most people start in the wrong end and that's not necessarily wrong in the long run <laughs> um it's it's really difficult to have an idea that has this like magic product market fit before you've tried it with the market um, so I think either you you get there by having a lot of experience of like how to design a product to get it to market or you learn it the hard way by designing something that doesn't have a good fit. And then you have to sort of adjust it together with the market. And and we were definitely the, the latter there with with Karma. We we set out early on um, 
with the vision to build uh, and we wanted it to be like um universally adopted so uh, it couldn't be you know a swedish problem that we were solving um or a, a very small one we wanted to take on a big problem and i think that too was sort of a a mistake, if you will. We tried mm-hmm. to do too much too fast uh, instead of finding like 10 users who loved the product. We wanted to find thousand who thought it was okay. Yes. Um, and we went for that. And that that's exactly what we got. I think we got a couple of thousand users who downloaded our deal application uh, that Karma was in the beginning with all kinds of deals in it because we, we sort of, we realized that one universal parameter uh, uh, that we would have to fulfill if we wanted to build something nice is that uh, we wanted to fulfill the f- that when a user used our product, we wanted them to feel like they gained something, that there was value in there for them. And we realized that a good deal is sort of a universally appreciated value. If you make a good deal in Canada or Japan or wherever, like it, it's all, uh, the feeling is like mutually good everywhere. Um, so hence why we started in a deal uh, area and then realized after a while that it's way too wide. Uh, the net we've cast is like, we're never going to get anyone to love this because you can get a little bit of everything. It's not really perfect for anyone. But that's when we we started to, and we were running out of funds from the first angel investor. So we were really sitting down at one point and saying like, we either shut this company down or we find a small thing to solve. Yeah, I think this is, yeah, this is quite a common thing. I think, you, you know, you start very broad thinking this needs to be something very massive that we're going to tackle. But ultimately, mm. you need to have uh, probably, as you said, a small group who are passionate about you. Um, mm. And then you had this deal platform with lots of deals on it. You started observing something on there. So this was sort of based on observations. I guess at this point, you could have gone in many different directions, including just closing it down. But you didn't. You you saw something within the users. What was that? We saw that, um, I think it was what we didn't see that was the, the biggest contributor to what, where we ended up. We didn't see anyone loving the, the use of Karma. And we mm. didn't see anyone who could explain why they were really using it, except that they were curious to find out what they could do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we realized that like, as long as we're trying to satisfy this large uh uh, a group this large of users, then we will have a very hard time getting anyone to really love it. And we started to dig into the data, but I mean, with a couple of thousand users and a couple of months uh, behind us, it, it wasn't the best data set you could imagine. But we started to, so one thing that we had to look to was like, we looked to ourselves. Do we love using the platform? And the answer was no. Um, we looked to our friends and family and, and none of them could really explain what karma was to them or like it wasn't, it was clearly not valuable to them. We started asking around in combination with looking at like what types of deals, because we had spent a lot of time building this platform, what types of deals seem to be most interesting, both to us and friends and family and the use, the little user data that we have. And that's when we found food waste, uh, in there. Okay. Um, yeah. 
Because yeah. I, I think this must, I, I heard this was quite similar to the um, the group of so the guys who were developing Airbnb. They were just like wondering why no one's using their platform. And they did some user research where they went down and sat down and watched people using it and said it was one of the most painful experiences they'd ever had. It was like, this is awful. What are we doing? Um, but so once you identified the sort of food thing, um, that's quite a difficult business model to sort of think about for a certain extent because um, you're, you're taking something that, considered waste and then valuizing it which ideally should be a great thing but it's not how society's traditionally seen food waste in that way no I, you're absolutely right about that and i think most people were very skeptical how we were going to derive any value from food waste um but i think that's exactly what was exciting to some of the early investors as well when we sat down and talked to some of the more visionary investors i know that they they didn't know how we were going to do it, but they could clearly tell that like there's something there. Like mm-hmm. nobody has done it yet. And it's either because it's the most useless area in the world to build a business on or because um, it doesn't intuitively uh, seem like there's value there. And when we started to crunch the numbers, unlike that there's a trillion dollars of food waste being thrown away each year, and this is just the sort of garbage bin value of the food. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just... The, the volumes alone in a single city were so huge and for a single restaurant that it could actually move the needle for the business. The value creation that we proposed early on was we can actually make a difference for the one throwing away the food. Uh, and it's a quite significant difference. It can be anything from, you know, a uh, thousand euros to uh, 25,000 euros um, a month, which for a small business is huge. It's massive. Mm. Um, and it can mean like getting an extra employee or, or, uh, getting extra consumers through the door that came there to buy food waste, but they actually ended up buying more things. So the real value lies in sort of what can we do with the food waste beyond monetary value? Is it making people see new restaurants and making uh, people engage with, you know, a community of, of, uh, uh, climate changers? So. I think that's the real value of fighting food waste. There are some, the statistics. I think are, are completely alarming. There are some. I think on your site, it would be the food waste alone would account for the third largest CO two emissions <laughs> on the planet. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's uh, quite scary too. And I, I mean, there's no real plan for how to to end this. So I think it's it's really about we need to figure out how to make a circular economy around food. And the food system is incredibly complex and like well designed. And if you start to dig in, you can see like it's fantastic what's been built over the last 100 years. But mm. it's like you're saying, we're in this state now where uh, what took 100 years to build, we need to do the same amount of iterations on it in probably the next 10 years to build a food system that makes sense for the future. Back in 2015, yeah. uh, was 2015 or so when you were starting this, I believe? Um, yes, 2015. You were kind of approaching this, I think there were more the heady days where we're thinking of startups to sort of maximize value and sustainability wasn't such a big deal. And it sounds a bit harsh, but it sounds like the business model, obviously you've got sustainability built into us, but that, was that your focus initially? Uh, or was it more kind of like, let's see if we can increase the profitability for these restaurants and cafes and shops and all of that sort of market? Uh, it wasn't the initial uh, route that we wanted to go uh, because we, we didn't, we couldn't really put a value on sustainability. Um, so 
to us when we started out, we saw that there was like a huge monetary value lost in food waste. And once we started to look into it, we sort of fell in love personally with the sustainability part. So mm -hmm. to us, it was important. And to us, it started to make sense that like, if we save a meal, uh, we can both make money on it and save the planet. So that sort of became our mant mantra in yeah. internally. I know that at some point, the two became like equals once sustainability uh, started to become this on the sort of world agenda, this important point that everyone needs to pitch in for us to solve this. And we realized that like, oh, we've <laughs> sort of by accident created this way of being sustainable that's pretty effortless and where you're going to eat anyways. And now you can do it in a way that it's actually beneficial for the planet. Very early on, we said that we need to make sure that we don't lose track of sustainability over revenue. The revenue always comes first for us because without that, we can't do anything sustainable. If we die as a company, then we're no, like, might as well have been a great idea and nothing else. Um, but we found out that, um, it takes a lot of effort in order to to keep sustainability front and center. Uh, but I'm happy to say that like five years in, we've we've really uh, put in a lot of work to make sure that that's the case. Got to this stage now where you say, OK, this is we're going in with the restaurants and we're going to do this. Um, you have to you have a platform that you've built, but I would imagine you have to now start thinking, adapting, speaking to these these restaurants. I don't think of the restaurant business as being traditionally very tech savvy. And I have seen some of the business models and waste is just built in there. So how did you sell that to the restaurant? How did you then start approaching and trying to, to bring that in? <laughs> That's a very good question. It's, uh, it's uh, actually one of the biggest challenges that we had was getting, getting the restaurants to join in the early days. It was really uh, really difficult to get them to understand the value of this. And as you're saying, most of them just said like, oh, but we've always had food waste or mm -hmm. the most common reply uh, still today is like, we don't have any food waste, which is, <laughs> I think we had to bring out the big guns in some of the meetings and say like, oh, do you, do you have trash cans then? Like, do you, are you one of those that are, have like solved the problem? Uh, because then we really want to understand how you did it because uh, mm. there's apparently there's a trillion dollars worth of waste that's that hasn't been solved mm -mm. but it was super challenging so i think what we did was really just go all in and wine and dine uh, some of the best restaurants that we could um think of in stockholm here in sweden and and we just said that like if we can get the our top favorite restaurants on board then uh mm that will be enough to convince, you know, the other restaurants to like, oh, are, are they on your platform? Then, yeah, we want to be that there too. And that tactic actually worked really well, a bit lucky. And uh, like, we were very glad to see when it started to ease a little bit, ease up a little bit so we could um, get in with more restaurants quicker. And the mentality for people that um, this would somehow, I mean, I suppose maybe lower their, their value of their product because they're, you know, there's people thinking, well, hold it, we can get it cheaper at a separate time or, or something like that. Is that something they, they sort of struggle with? In the beginning, they were worried about that. 
but very quickly uh, we show them that like it doesn't impact their bottom line in any way if anything it adds to the bottom line because not only do people come to to buy surplus which brings them revenue but they also usually buy more things or come back 87 percent of people who have bought through karma has actually said in a survey that we did with a couple of thousand users uh, said that they have come back later and bought non-surplus items from that location and that they discovered it through karma so we know that it also works as a really good discovery platform for the restaurants and we were worried in the beginning as well that like oh maybe we are devaluing their original product but once more and more numbers started to to uh, come in we could definitely see that it, it wasn't at all that we were really just bringing extra uh, to the bottom line just thinking from the point of view of, of a product you have your suppliers and your the restaurants in this end and then you mm. have your end users so how are you sort of adapting and, and working on the product for that it's uh, like you're saying two users uh, is if we would have known the amount of work that you need to put into to get two users to love the platform then we would have probably shied away but it's really been sort of creating two separate journeys like one mm. journey for the buyers or the people on the platform who buy food and one for the sellers who come there to upload their surplus mm -hmm. and to us that's really been in the beginning i think we we just assume that oh one of them is going to be complicated and the other one will just sort of work work out but we've mm -hmm. realized that there's such a different sort of tactic to get uh, buyers or sellers on the platform so We've really had to put in a lot of time and effort to develop those two separate funnels and understand each sub-segment of those groups as well. Like some people are there for the environment, others are yeah. there for uh, making a, a fun, like great deal, eating food for less. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a five year long journey that I feel is is uh, <laughs> not over at all. Uh, but it's we're discovering new things every month about who our users really are and how they interact with the platform. So it's really exciting. So that is kind of interesting. I mean, who are, because there's, there's two different ones there, because your users from the business side of thing has also expanded. That's changed. Mm -hmm. um, how has that shifted over the time? Because you started off with very much a restaurant-driven business model, I think, I believe. But yeah. gradually you've increased it to more supermarkets and uh, other chains. Yeah, that's that's true. So we... We've gone from from being a restaurant centered one to to supermarkets and, and in between there was bakeries and uh, uh, cafes and, uh, you know, uh, grab and go places. So mm -hmm. we really designed the platform early on to work for a la minute prepared food. Mm -hmm. And then we realized like, oh, grab and go might be an even better segment because they continually overproduce on purpose to always have fully stocked shelves. And then we got contacted actually by... Um, one of the largest grocery stores here in Sweden who who said that like oh we've we've heard about karma which was one of the first incoming calls we were getting um and they said like we have tons of of surplus and we would love to work with you and we had no idea how that was going to be received and i remember a very stressful morning when we sort of activated the grocery store um category and the app was flooded with like milk and butter and stuff that we were like oh god we're like destroying our own value proposition here but apparently that was uh, super interesting for for end users and it just opened up a different uh, use case so people would use it to get lunch and as long as they could filter away the groceries uh, groceries in the app mm -hmm. they were able to go in at a different time and when they were grocery planning and they could see like what's available in karma yeah they would actually design their 
their meals around that. So it's been it was really exciting. Uh, not without its its worry worrying nights, but uh, it, it definitely turned out well in the end. And even including a fridge now, I saw on your website. <laughs> yeah, that was, you, it's an innovation. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. <laughs> that was actually um, uh, that was actually a, a, another sort of a happy accident. I think as long as you. Tr- Try a lot of things. Some things work and some things don't. A lot of things have not worked, obviously. Mm-hmm. But this fridge thing was just a case of we had a grocery store that was doing so much surplus on karma. They were actually taking care of as much as they could do. Um, and they said that, like, we are now out competing the deli counter because they're putting the karma items in the deli counter. And we're now like fish and meat had to move aside uh, for surplus. And they asked, like, what can we do? Because we're now also like every second customer that came to the deli counter was there to pick up karma things. I don't remember exactly how we started, but someone introduced me to um, um, uh, a a woman at Electrolux who was uh, uh, such a sort of uh, good uh, partner in this because Mm. I just took a we took a coffee one day and I mentioned this to her. And uh, she was just, you know, went up in flames and was like, oh, we can we can do this. Like we can partner together. We can create a fridge where people can pick this up. And I remember being skeptical, but I said like, yeah, but OK, if we do the software, maybe you can do the hardware. That was the start of like uh, this uh, very exciting relationship between industry and startup where we got to see their processes and uh, they got to see uh, sort of our unreasonable deadlines. I remember one day when when uh, we were talking about when we were going to release this fridge or like try mm-hmm. a beta of it. And I think we proposed in three months and they proposed in seven years. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there was no ill intention. I think it was just like if you look at the average time from like idea to like a fridge being sold in a market, I, I don't know. Uh, if that's the case or if it was just because it was a small batch, but it was just it was uh, a really, uh, you know, a clash of cultures in a really good way. We learned a ton from them and their uh, way of working. And um, I hope that we could uh, teach them how to be overly optimistic on timelines. <laughs> I think that's that's at least what uh, what we were told. Yeah, no, it's amazing. We, we once did a design sprint with a calm coolant manufacturer and the design sprint was uh, based on how might we reduce our product to market deadline from anything less than eight years. <laughs> just, like, <laughs> just anything, anything less than eight years yeah. would be great. So yeah. um, you realize when you work in these bigger companies and the size of things and the scale of projects is very different, which is also uh, something you've experienced, I said, at several stages ages i'd imagine is that scale uh, mm. you start small and then you get some more funding on board and then the team gets bigger and with that comes new problems i'd imagine yeah definitely and, and i mean it's still early days for us given where our ambitious life ambitions lie but mm. um, um we've been through several stages i think one of the most fa- infamous gaps is like when you go from a family stage of being like 10 to 15 people tops mm. uh, to more of a business stage where you have to stop um focusing on like uh, it it becomes almost impossible i'd say to have these like personal relationships that's deep with everyone mm. uh, and instead you have to get these like new working relationships and to some people that really difficult i think to leave the family stage and go into the business stage and uh, because all of a sudden you're like but we used to do it 
this way for like the past year and a half. <laughs> how, do, yeah. how, how come we're doing it this way now? Um, so yeah, that's been, it's been challenging. As I understand it, you're, you know, you're scaling up within Sweden, but then you're also, you've opened up new markets, which was, I think the UK and France. Um, yeah. How is that is another sort of challenge. I mean, it's not like you're in say the States where I'd imagine scaling from one uh, state to another state and gradually rolling it out doesn't have that mm-hmm. many cultural differences. Uh, how has it been? Does it work that way in Europe? <laughs> I, I honestly don't know what the state-to-state expansion in, in the US would look like. Maybe there is a sort of cultural things. Uh, but, could be. but what I can say, yeah, could be. Uh, what I can say is that like uh, going from Sweden to the UK was a big step. Uh, just like we basically converted the entire business from Swedish to English. And uh, I think it's a... N- Nowadays, it's a very rare occasion when we realize that there's a meeting with only Swedes uh, because there are very few only Swedes in the company. Mm. Um, but but it was super difficult in the beginning. We took a we took like a couple of team members and went to London and we tried to talk to restaurants and we were met with the same sentiment that we were years earlier in Sweden, where like we don't have any food waste. This is super uninteresting, or like we don't want to sell our food and risk our regular uh, um, sales. So uh, it was sort of like reliving the early days of karma. Um, But again, super helpful. And uh, given that we knew that we got past it in Sweden, we knew that we just had to be persistent. Uh, After a while, I think we we broke through and we we started to get the same sort of curves and growth and traction uh, in, in the UK. And then we started the same in Paris and we expanded to Brighton and Toulouse and yeah, it's it's just been uh, it was um, kind of crazy just before COVID struck and then obviously we had to pull the brakes on on a lot of the expansion stuff just to to make sure that we we're doing it in a responsible way and and that's obviously uh, must have been a, a big shift in the business model almost uh, well maybe not overnight but within a series of weeks that uh, a lot of the restaurants were no longer able to open and um, yeah how did how does that affected karma um i think we lost about 60 percent of our revenue from one week to the other uh and i mean for us that's one thing of course we're we're funded by venture capital we we were in a good position if 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 there is such a thing but I think the more long-term effects that we've seen now one year in, uh, I mean, we've had to change our, our uh, the way we uh, charge. We've had to change the way we uh, help restaurants. So we not only do the surplus, but we actually offer them to sell full price items as well. Uh, everything to sort of try to be um, a crotchet for the industry while we get through this this part. Or a lot of businesses sort of applied that they uh, they really needed all the cash, and we had to give up some revenue to make sure that they stayed afloat. And I think that's that was also a moment where we sat down and said, like, okay, we need the revenue, they need the revenue. What do we do here? And we sort of realized that, uh, well, if if we're coming out on the other side at some point, then we don't want to be remembered as the ones who sort of you know <laughs> grabbed all the money and ran. So. We definitely um, said that, okay, let's help the industry and we'll solve it uh, with our owners and and shareholders. And we managed to do it. Uh, So I'm really proud of of, uh, the the team uh, for for pulling through during these times. I mean, we went from basically having double digits growth every single month and, you know, celebrating uh, with the team every day to like just seeing business after business uh, shut their doors and 
you know, uh, close down uh, store uh, storefronts and and really having a tough time. So, yeah, I'm. Um, I think the biggest win has been sort of the the team spirit that remains after this really tough time. I think um, if we have anything to take away from COVID, it will be our, our resilience, the, the fact that we're still there. And we kept yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think that's uh, that's one of your things, isn't it? Res- uh, resilience. I think yeah, something you you you've certainly talked about. I think in the past, um, and that keeping going is one of the the things that just is most important for startups. Really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if you never give up you can never fail right i mean (laughs) you can you can fail for the moment but if you keep going you can always turn that around so i really i'm a huge believer in just like powering through tough times and uh so far we've been through several tough times and we've powered through each and every one of them and i'll i'll be damned if covid was going to be the one (laughs) thing that sort of toppled the company or put us in a situation where we gave up and that and that's sort of our new mantra if if uh, uh, if we have any and uh, then it, yeah we hear that a lot in the team chats that's good that sounds i think that's a, a great feeling when you realize that you can just whatever happens we're going to keep going mm. um but one of the things that i also was saying that is the business is sort of shifting perhaps a little over time as you've gathered more and more data on the food waste mm. and i think you i read somewhere about you saying that actually if there is a threat of you going out of business, it's yourself that you've become so good at getting rid of food race that, you know, you've killed your own business model. Uh, you'd like to talk about that? I mean, uh, that would be a fantastic scenario because if that day comes, then that means we've solved the problem we set out to solve, which is, I would say it's unlikely that, uh, yeah. I mean, not only that one person or one organization can do it, uh, but just even if, if every, everyone bands together to, to try and solve it, then it's still a massively difficult problem to solve. But yeah, I, I think that we want to outcompete ourselves because right now we are benefiting from surplus. And I think that is something that we would like to, to build the new world of food where we're benefiting from preventing surplus. Uh, that's the business model that we've been pursuing from day one, but realized very early on that as soon as we set out to solve food waste, if you will, we knew that like preventing it is the way to go not living off of it. Uh, that prevention is not going to happen overnight. That prevention is a massive shift in how we uh, sort of interact with food in our daily lives. And I think that's it's it, the company who cracks that is going to have sort of the future of food in their hands. So we want to be that company. And that's why we've been pursuing this data play where we um, we know so much about food waste and why it occurs and how it occurs and where it occurs and for what reason uh so we've actually started to to build out a lot of uh, predictive analysis where we can help businesses know in advance if they're going to produce more or less food waste in the upcoming week mm. and i mean preventing food waste is 10 times as valuable for the businesses as producing it and reselling it so, uh, so there's that a huge mean win actually advising then that's all a slight shift in in effect in in being able to be part of the inventory system within and say for instance a restaurant help them to as i say i see a shift slightly there where it's almost like a different uh it still solving the same problem but um you're no longer just serving the restaurants um helping them to get used as to purchase their their waste but you're also helping them to reduce it <laughs> yeah that's that's a way of of us uh, doing that uh we are we're exploring uh, several 
avenues for how we can uh, be part of of uh, the reduced production overall. Uh, in many cases, it's um, it's actually necessary for the restaurant or the, the the food business to overproduce or overstock, and then we can be part of making sure that we do that at a minimum. So we don't, you know, if we can reduce even by one percent the mm. overstocking for a grocery store, then that means tons of revenue for them and uh, tons of less food waste for the world. So it's it's uh, it's uh, we're going at it like one percent at a time. I, I don't think we'll you won't be seeing tomorrow that we solved it and, and there will be empty shelves exactly at the end of the day when someone grabs the last cheese in the grocery store so, and it's like we did it yeah um, but uh but yeah one one cheese at a time and one um sort of meal at a time i think we can get closer to zero but, and also so this education part is also a part of it i think people the consumer on the other end of it is also becoming more aware of food waste and i know recently you were actually invited to a summit with obama to talk about things like that is how is that what what level is government taking this now more seriously i know they are taking it a lot more seriously i think there are uh, there's so many initiatives in the eu alone uh where they're actively uh working to fight food waste there was there's this famous law that was uh, uh, passed in France where you're uh, allowed a tax deduction if you actually take care of your food waste instead of throwing it away, which meant uh, that a lot of businesses shifted to actually donating their food or making sure that it didn't end up in landfill at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a bunch of initiatives going on. I think we have a lot of them listed on our website for like what's going on today or like uh, this year uh, in food waste. Mm-hmm. And I think that like like anything, if the public wants it enough, uh, then certain politicians and government and organizations start to notice and pick that up. So there's definitely like the conversation around food waste and has been very tightly linked with the environment. And, and that conversation has skyrocketed in the last just five years. So I think it's it's gone from sort of a dark corner of, of the mind of people to being much more front and center. And just the fact that, you know, um, we were super honored to have Obama recognize uh, Karma as, mm-hmm. as a business and what we're doing. And, and that just, that was sort of also a, a confidence boost for us that like we we are doing something that is meaningful because this is not just, you know, us in our own little bubble saying that food waste is the most important thing. It, it's it's globally recognized as, as one of the problems we need to solve. But yeah, yeah it meant a lot to us. At least. Yeah. So where, where, I mean, just sort of wrapping up a little bit now, but where do you see it going? Where would you like to be in 10 years? Let's sort of give it a long, a long shot there. I'd like to be on the trajectory that we set out a couple of years back and that we're currently on to be the gold standard when it comes to reducing food waste across the food value chain. That's for the sellers, obviously, mm-hmm. or the ones selling the food. And for, for people using Karma, we want to be effortless sustainability, really. Uh, we want to ignite and incite the, the sort of climate movement in a way that isn't painful or onerous or you know time consuming because there's a billion things you could do to save the world but let's be honest like you'd probably rather learn that new language that you want to learn or you know watch a great movie on netflix so i think it's our responsibility to also give the users an effortless way to be sustainable so if we can do those two and continue to do those two, 
uh, more and more well over the next couple of years, then I'm the happiest man in the world. Just knowing what you do now and, and how you, how having that much more information than when you started, what, how do you feel about the future? I've been mean, optimistic or how, how is that for you? Uh, I'm a, that's a good question. I'm a relentless optimist. So I think there's definitely ways we can solve uh, the problems that are upon us now. Um, I'm not at all the doom and gloom kind of person. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm very optimistic for the future. I'm optimistic for food waste. I think there's so many people willing to do exactly what it takes to solve the problem. Um, so I think uh, we'll figure it out. I have, uh, I'm no doubt. Well, it sounds like you're on the right way. So um, thank you so much for, for taking this time. And uh, I'm really, really excited. And I only have one last question, which is when are you opening in Berlin? Oh, uh, I have an answer, but it's a secret answer. So I can't, I can't tell you. Uh, someday is, someday is my answer. Well, hopefully it's someday <laughs> soon. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, good luck in the future. Thank you very much. Now, prior to this episode, I was really not aware of just how substantial food waste was. We had an interview with Fanny Rollet from Antrofonel, and she was looking at sort of the pre and post harvest waste that comes from fresh produce, but that it goes all the way through the value chain that along the way we keep on just producing stuff and just throwing away is just seems seems so wrong. So I think there's really interesting how companies like Karma are finding ways of first of all looking at that as value and then finding ways that we can embrace saving it and extending its life so that it can be useful. I love Yalma's optimism and also he's, he's sort of business savvy to a certain extent. The way he and like so many of the social entrepreneurs I speak with, it is about profitability. It is about driving sales, but you only drive sales where you deliver value to your clients. And in this case, they, they were delivering a huge sort of difference for the restaurants and shops that they're working with, helping them to increase their bottom line, which of course makes a profitable business for karma. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you do ever have any questions, please just drop me a line. Mark at MotherEarthHeroes.show Thanks as always to Paul Five, the amazing podcast editor. And you can check him out at www.paulfive. That's P-A-U-L-F-Y-F-E dot com. And of course, uh, I look forward to bringing you more guests. And in the meantime, don't forget to save the planet. We need to do it sooner rather than later. <laughs>